0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke's gospel, chapter 16. Returning to this portion of scripture, Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, contained only in the gospel of Luke. And I'll be putting in at verse 19 and reading to the end of the chapter. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life You received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that, they, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, our first message from this passage, we consider the life of of the rich man and Lazarus contrasted. Contrasted in life, contrasted in death, and contrasted in eternity. And then last Lord's Day, we saw the suffering rich man's hopeless prayers. We began to open that up. And we noted his first prayer, the suffering rich man's hopeless prayer for himself. We saw the suffering that prompted his prayer. The presumption evident in his prayer that he was a son of Abraham, a true son of Abraham. We saw the unsympathetic response to his prayer in the the words of Abraham. And then we consider the impossibility of God answering his prayer. Now this week, I hope the recorder is on that one, I trust is this one wasn't last Lord's Day. So this morning we come to the second of the rich man's prayers from hell. And we're going to consider the suffering rich man's hopeless prayer for his brothers in verses 27 through 31. Jesus teaches that relationships formed in this life will compound the misery of those in hell. And I would suggest in the same way that relationships formed in this life among the redeemed is one of the great blessings of heaven. Certainly, we see Lazarus having fellowship with Abraham, laying his head upon his bosom. The rich man's remembrance in hell of his five brothers filled him with a sense of foreboding, and it drove him to prayer. We might say, well, all prayer is good. All prayer is going to be answered. Well, on the surface, his prayer for his brothers may seem unselfish. It may appear considerate, and it might even be viewed as as evangelical. But I suggest to you that his prayer was none of these things. It was really uttered to prevent the intensifying of his own minis- his own misery in hell. His opportunity, you see to be heard by God died with him. God doesn't answer prayers uttered from hell. That's a stark reality and it's certainly taught in the passage before us. Now as we consider the Suffering rich rich man's hopeless prayer for his brothers, we're going to notice three things. The first of which is the impossibility of God granting his hopeless prayer. It's a terrible thing to think that God will hear but not answer prayer. Let us notice several reasons why God will not answer prayer prayers from hell. First of all, God neither answers the prayers of the living for the dead, nor of the dead for the living. Now why not? Well, the state of those in hell is forever and unchangeably fixed and therefore beyond the reach of prayer. There are religions that teach that you can pray for the dead. The Bible certainly does not teach that. And God does not hear the prayers of those in hell. The time you see and the place to pray for ourselves and for others is in the here and the now. Those in heaven don't need our prayers because their state of bliss is far more blessed than we could ever help them by our prayers. And the living cannot benefit those in hell by their prayers. You see, those in hell have placed themselves beyond the reach of prayer. Yet the Bible does reveal that saints in heaven praying for their persecuted brethren on earth. They're under the altar. They're pleading with God to judge and to avenge their blood upon their persecutors. And we know that God hears and he answers that prayer and will especially at the return of Christ. Those prayers are heard. Now, admittedly, this vision in Revelation, even like the imagery in Jesus' parable, is symbolic. Yet it pictures literal realities. Saints in glory apparently have some knowledge of their earthly brethren and they pray for them. But prayers from hell God does not hear. God does not answer the prayers of the living for the dead, nor does he answer the prayers of the wicked dead for the living. Notice the second reason why God will not answer the rich man's prayer. God does not hear the prayers of lawless wicked people, lest they be by his grace praying for salvation but God does not hear their prayers until he quickens their hearts. Proverbs 28 and verse nine, he who turns his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. The most holy thing a wicked man can do is to pray, but if he has regard to wickedness, God doesn't hear his prayer. David, the righteous king, says in Psalm 66 and verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the man after God's own heart, David says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, if I'm favoring it, if I'm chewing over it, if I'm sucking sweetness from it, David says, the Lord will not hear. And that's a reminder to us that we need to pray for forgiveness when we come to God. Lord, cleanse my heart that you might hear my prayers. Let me not regard sin while I come into the presence of the holy God. James informs us that it is the effectual fervent prayer of what kind of man? Of a righteous man that avails much. God hears the holy, but he shuts his ear to the wicked. Proverbs 15 and verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Third and finally, the rich man's prayer could not be answered because he directed it to the wrong person, to Abraham and not to Abraham's God. Now it may be argued that Abraham symbolically represents God. And with that said, let us be reminded that God does not hear the prayers of Offered prayers that are offered to saints and to angels. It is especially here that Romanism displays its blatant idolatry. Supplications to saints and angels are ineffectual, since only God hears men's prayers. Triune Jehovah is to be the sole object of our worship. He's to be the sole object of our praise, the sole object of our prayer. We come to him through Jesus by the Spirit. We were reminded of that earlier this morning. Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and men, and we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. True prayer, that is, prayer that God hears, is prayer in and through and to the members of the Holy Trinity. Paul makes this plain, Ephesians 2 and verse 18. For through him, that is, Jesus, through him we both, that is, believing Jews and Gentiles, for through Jesus we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So prayer that is heard is Trinitarian in its focus. Further, I find the rich man's request strange. That Abraham sent Lazarus to warn his five brothers. I scratch my head. Why, why didn't the rich man ask Abraham to send himself? Why didn't he, Lord send me Abraham? Wouldn't he want relief from the flames even for a moment? Well, maybe he reasons that they would be more likely to respond to Lazarus than to himself. And does he ask for Lazarus since maybe he thought he had lost his grip upon the consciences of his Brothers by his self-centered opulent lifestyle That they would listen to this poor beggar a godly man and they wouldn't listen to their rich brother a highly successful man Maybe Maybe they would be more inclined to hear righteous Lazarus than their wicked elder brother And we must wonder, was this self-seeking rich man really concerned for the spiritual and eternal welfare of his brothers at home, all likely younger than himself? Had, Had they looked up to him, and now he's remorseful that they have sought to pattern their lives after his? Does he now see his folly when it is too late for him to repent, but not for them? Did the fires of hell spark a sudden desire for his brother's eternal happiness? I don't think so. There's no repentance in hell. No, it seems more likely to me that he didn't want his brother's with him in hell because their presence would only intensify his own misery. Spurgeon's suggestion may well be correct. Their coming into hell would increase his wretchedness. Their upbraiding would flog his conscience and increase his woe. It was not that he had any spiritual love for their souls. He had love only for himself and did not wish to hear their reproaches. And brethren, we should be reminded of something else about hell. Many in this world have convinced themselves that hell is going to be a party with all the stops pulled out. Everything they want, they're going to get. One has said that hell is the place where all the interesting people will be. But that hope will go up in smoke in the twinkling of an eye when they are plunged into the presence of their damned friends and relatives. The old adage that misery loves company is reversed in hell. Hell's inmates find relationships there anything but comforting and consoling. They only increase misery. Men who hated each other here will absolutely hate them in hell. Let us hear well the teaching of the Bible. There's not a drop of mercy, not a hint of happiness or harmony in hell. Only misery. So that's the impossibility of God granting his hopeless prayer. Notice, secondly, the rejection of the sufficiency of the Bible evident in his hopeless prayer. You see, the rich man was a fool while he lived on earth. And hell hasn't made him any the wiser. At death and now in hell, he's still rejecting the Bible. He doesn't say, oh, I wish I'd listened to it here. Open my brother's ears to hear it there. So they don't come here. I turned a deaf ear to it. Give them ears to hear, would you please? You don't hear that. Now he's convinced that something beyond the plain warnings and urgent gospel invitations of the Bible is needed to keep his brothers out of hell. You see, he turned a deaf ear to God's voice in the scriptures all of his life. He turned a blind eye to the righteous beggar at his feet. And perhaps driven by remorse and a guilty conscience, he pleads with Abraham to send his brothers a resurrected Lazarus. But the same Lazarus who could not bring a drop of water to cool his tongue will not bring a single word to save his brothers. If they only hear the testimony of a resurrected Lazarus, then they will believe God and repent of their sins and flee from his wrath and not come to be with me here in hell. That seems to be what he's saying. That's his thinking. We must ask, is this right thinking? That brings us to the instructive answer to his hopeless prayer. Abraham has but one response, a response that he repeats, a response that exposes the rich man's folly and futility in his request. You see, if his brothers will not repent and believe The Bible, they will not hear Lazarus. If they will not hear the living word, they will not hear the voice of the living dead. It's just as simple as that. Notice again that death leaves men in their folly. Hell makes them none the wiser, Rather, damnation only hardens men's hearts, confirming them in their unbelief. There was hope for them to believe here. There's no hope for them to believe there. And, brethren, we are reminded, are we not, that unbelief makes us fools. Such is the hardening effect of unbelief as well on this side of the grave as on the other Until God makes us wise unto salvation, we think that we are wiser than God. Your Abraham's telling them what they need, and the rich man say, no, they don't need that. We pride ourselves in being objective, that we will not be duped into believing religious nonsense, especially if it comes from the Bible You see, we are proud evidentialists at heart, refusing to believe anything that we cannot confirm with our physical senses. This rich man was convinced that his unbelieving brothers, like he must see in order that they would believe. But the Bible teaches us the exact opposite. It teaches that we must first believe so that we may see. We must believe before we will know. We must be assured of our hope before we will realize our hope. God must give us new eyes of faith before we will see the kingdom of God. Faith comes first, then understanding as a result of faith. That's what the Bible teaches. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith believes it, that the things that are hoped for will one day be realized. They're seen with the eye of hope, and one day they'll be handled with the hands of hope. But it's not realized right now. Read the end of Romans 8. by faith we understand. No, it doesn't say we understand, therefore we believe. It's backwards. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. This is is what evolutionists, they they reject that. You come to these silly notions as a Christian, I can see why you would believe that, but I'm, I'm above silly notions. I want evidence, raw data. It's all around them. God's fingerprints are on everything that he's created, but they blinded themselves so they won't see it. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things which are visible. Or not made, excuse me out of things which are visible, or made out of things which are invisible. God spoke all things into existence. The unmistakable teaching of the Bible, it is that it is only with eyes of faith that we behold invisible, spiritual, eternal realities. You see, God must first give us eyes before we can see these realities. Until then, our sin, the world, and the devil keep us blind to spiritual realities. Augustus Toplady wrote these words. T'was sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. When God gives us new eyes, we begin to see eternal realities that are visible only to the eye of faith. Paul puts it this way at the end of 2nd Corinthians chapter four, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We see these things with the eyes of faith. That's why the world doesn't understand Christians. We have the evidence we need and it's viewed with the eye of faith. When God grants us the grace of faith, we see Jesus. We behold before our adoring eyes, the lover of our souls. It is then that we begin to love him that first loved us, to love him who displayed his love by shedding his sacrificial blood for us. In contemplating his saving love, we begin to experience the glorious joy that words just cannot express. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 1 and verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. See, until God gives us those eyes to see, We have a a very transient joy about the perishing things of this world. But when we're given eyes to see Jesus, we taste and see that he is good. Our hearts leap forth in joy, joy that the world doesn't understand. And I dare say it's joy that we don't even understand. But we know that it's there and it sustains us. Further, when God gives us new ears, he enables us to hear and receive the gospel we once rejected. We embrace his word as it really is. glorious good news of the son of God who sacrificed himself for guilty sinners. This glorious good news we once despise, we now love with new hearts given us by God. Paul tells us how this change takes place. Romans chapter 10, putting in at verse 16. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. They didn't heed the good news, the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or by the word of God. It's the means through which we embrace Christ. We hear him and his voice. We meet the eternal son of God in his inscripturated word. And we believe to the salvation of our never dying souls. Brethren, let us not be mistaken. The rich man as a Jew likely had a form of religion. He had a kind of faith. He may well have attended synagogue services where Moses was preached every Sabbath. But his religion was not saving because his religion was not grounded in God's word. His faith was the faith of demons who believe but refuse to repent. You see, this man's religion came up from the pit, not not, not down from heaven. So he turned a deaf ear to the word of God and would have his brothers do the same. Superstition was his religion. He believed that a word from a risen Lazarus, not submission to God's sufficient revelation through Moses and the prophets was what his brothers really needed to keep him out of hell. But Abraham insists that no miraculous appearance from heaven will ever turn his brother's unbelief into faith. They simply needed to hear and to heed God's word if they would escape hell. One has well said, a dead Moses is a better teacher than a living Lazarus. Abraham insists that the word of God is the sole and sufficient rule of faith. It always was. Sinners have always been saved by believing God's revelation and entrusting their souls to his promises, especially to the promised one, Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And such was Lazarus' faith. And so it will always be in this life until faith faith becomes sight and grace gives way to glory. It is the inscripturated word. It is in the inscripturated word that we meet Christ, the incarnate word. So let us hear and to heed his command to flee from the wrath to come by trusting his sacrifice for our sins or else be lost forever. We have the promise. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So that brings us to a couple of concluding observations. First of all, supernatural phenomena is powerless to bring sinners to repentance. Miracles cannot turn unbelievers into believers. They didn't in Moses day, either with the Egyptians or for Israel in the desert, Saul did not repent when Samuel came preaching from the dead, nor did unbelievers repent when they viewed Jesus' miracles, even when he recalled another man named Lazarus from the grave, and instead of leading unbelievers to faith, some sought to kill Lazarus to silence his witness for Christ. Far more wickedly, they sought to kill the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. Then consider Jesus' resurrection. Rather than trusting in the resurrected Savior, multitudes were only further confirmed in their unbelief. Instead of believing before He went to the cross, they cried, crucify. And then they rejected Him after He rose from the dead. Requiring signs and miracles to believe may have a ring of spirituality. But really, such a demand is devilish. Satan appears as an angel of light, and he deceives many with his counterfeit miracles. His message is see and believe, whereas Jesus' message is believe the gospel and be saved. In fact, on the last day, Jesus will condemn many miracle workers, As those who never knew him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Brethren, we are saved by believing God's bare word about our crucified and resurrected Lord. In fact, Jesus pronounces a blessing upon those who don't see and yet believe. Notice the resurrected Christ's gentle reproof to a no longer doubting Thomas. John 20, verses 29 through 31. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I suggest to you that it is not true, Christians, or at least not healthy Christians but unbelievers, that require miracles to substantiate their faith. As long as wicked men pander after the miraculous, there will be charlatans to scratch their itch and to dazzle their eyes. Now, I don't know if the 19th century showman, P.T. Barnum was a Christian, but he showed that he was an astute student Of human nature when he remarked that there is a sucker born every minute and I suggest to you that no sucker is more gullible than a superstitious or religious sucker many not content with believing the simple gospel are easily impressed by reports of people returning from the grave with their fabulous stories of visiting heaven or hell You may have heard the story of a young Alex Malarkey. I have to smile just at reading his name. He was a six-year-old boy who suffered a traumatic brain injury in a car accident. And afterwards, he reported that during his coma, he left his body and visited heaven and came back again. And he tells his story in his subsequent memoir, Miracles, Angels, and Life Beyond This World, which became a best-selling book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, A True Story. Hollywood later took Malarkey's story and made out of it a television movie of the same title. You may remember when that, was, that hit the news like wildfire. Some years later, young Malarkey repented of his fabrication and retracted his story. He confessed in these words I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. That is, unless it's inspired by God. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though he committed none of his own so that you may be forgiven. Not by reading a work of man, I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough. You see, men must believe something even if it is not the Bible. Those who will not believe God's written revelation will cling to men's superstitions. They will embrace lies and reject the truth, and not a few people who first believed Malarkey's story still regard it as gospel truth even after his retraction. Sadly, lies are easy to believe and hard to shake for those who reject the Bible. Unbelief makes fools of us all. Secondly, more briefly, the scriptures alone are sufficient to bring sinners to repentance. Jesus teaches in this parable that all we need to be saved here and to go to heaven hereafter is found in the Bible. We just need to believe its infallible testimony and place our trust in Jesus to deliver us from our sin and from hell. Listen to our own confession of faith. It states it very plainly. The London Baptist Confession, chapter one, of the Holy Scriptures. It plainly sets forth the teaching of the Bible. Paragraph one, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And then in paragraph six of that same first chapter, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith in life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the spirit or traditions of men. And brethren, many, many texts in the Bible teach this. I choose but one passage which speaks of the Bible's sufficient witness for us to come to saving faith and for living the Christian life. And notice that this New Testament text is referring to the sufficiency of the Old Testament. We may reason if... The Old Testament scriptures are sufficient to lead us to faith in Jesus. How much more the New Testament as the final and complete revelation of God to mankind. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. Paul writing to Timothy. Young Timothy is under study in the gospel. Who is brought to faith on the knees of his mother and grandmother who opened the scriptures to him. We read elsewhere. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, speaking of the Old Testament, that's all Timothy had, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And I urge us all, especially young people that are here, to ponder Paul's word to young Timothy Do you wish to be saved from your sin? God saves young people that believe. You wish to be made wives, wise unto salvation. Embrace the truth that is preached to you, that is taught you in your homes. Seek Christ and believe in him as he is revealed in the sacred word. Trust the Savior. And if the Old Testament is Better than a risen man's testimony, how inescapable are we who have the whole Bible and yet fail to believe its message. The Bible is all we need to show us our sin and to introduce us to the Savior who came to deliver believers from the wrath to come. We need nothing more to warrant our faith than God's infallible word. It is enough and of this truth we sing. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. We meet Jesus in the word. I leave you with these questions this morning and ask yourselves with judgment day honesty. First of all, Do I believe the Bible is the only completely sufficient word from God to which nothing more needs be added to justify my believing its message? Is it the word of God alone? Is it sufficient in itself? Secondly, have I believed its message which tells me about my sin and my guilt, and my need to be saved from eternal hell. Have I believed that message? And finally, have I placed my trust in the resurrected Jesus who promises to save all believing sinners from the wrath to come? All these are crucial messages. May none of us leave here without Answering them all in the affirmative. Let's pray. Our Father, these are serious words. This is a sober message. It's not messages that we like to hear or even to preach. But Jesus spoke about these things. We must contemplate these things, ponder these eternal realities and we pray that you would cause this word to work its way down deep into our hearts and we will contemplate its message to us. We will not run from it, but we will run to Christ. Grant us, we pray, the feet of faith and repentance that we may run to the cross, confess our sins, be saved for time and for eternity. Happy now, happy forever. If there's if there's anyone here who can't, answer these questions in the affirmative, who has doubt that he or she is a Christian. Oh, we pray, Lord, open their eyes to see Jesus. Give them ears to hear his voice. It says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, Lord, please hear such prayers, for we know that you will. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Save sinners this day and make your people all the more dependent upon the word of God as solely sufficient for them for time and for eternity. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.